Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Our guest experts on this month's episode number 16, Hot Joints, What to Do, are Dr. Joel Yaffe and Dr. Indy Ghosh. Dr. Yaffe is an emergency physician at the University Health Network in Toronto. He's Assistant Director of Education at the Department of Emergency Medicine at UHN and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto. He's the Director of the University of Toronto's Annual Update and Emergency Medicine Conference in Whistler, BC. Dr. Andy Ghosh is an emergency physician as well as the Chief and Clinical Director of Emergency Medicine at York Central Hospital in Toronto. He was the Program Director for the CCFPEM Residency Program in the Division of Emergency Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. When we pick up a chart in the ED of a patient with the chief complaint of a painful swollen joint, we generally don't jump up and down with excitement, partly because the tests available to us in the ED are rarely able to help us make a definitive diagnosis, and partly because of our perception that patients with acute monoarthritis are unlikely to have life-threatening diagnoses. Here's the problem. There's three major diagnostic considerations in adult acute monoarthritis. Septic arthritis, crystal arthritis, and occult trauma, and there's considerable overlap in their clinical presentations, and you can have two of these diagnoses at the same time. All of these can present with fever, painful passive range of motion, non-weight-bearing, and have a hot swollen joint. Based on history and physical examination, and even after lab testing, it's not always possible to differentiate these entities. So there is way too often delays in diagnosis and treatment which leads to significant morbidity and mortality. Besides this diagnostic uncertainty that we often face with these patients, the incidence of septic arthritis is on the increase because of more surgical procedures, longer life expectancy, and more patients on immunosuppressants. With the help of Dr. Yaffe and Dr. Ghosh, we'll give you the knowledge and clinical decision tools that you need to give you more confidence next time you're faced with a patient with acute arthritis in the ED. In the first part of this episode, we're going to go through a couple cases of acute monoarthritis. And then in the second part of the episode, we're going to go through a couple of cases of acute polyarthritis and then wrap it up with a general overall approach to acute arthritis in the ED and the best case ever, as well as a few juicy announcements. Welcome, Dr. Yaffe. Welcome, Dr. Ghosh. Thank you. Nice to be here. Great. So we're going to jump right into the first case here. This is a case of an 81-year-old man with a history of rheumatoid arthritis who's been treated with long-term low-dose prednisone. He presents to the emergency department with a two-day history of a swollen left wrist that's painful to touch. He reports no prior wrist swelling and no recent trauma. He has no body rash, dysuria, oral ulcers, tophi, or eye symptoms. On exam, he's afebrile with normal vitals. His left wrist is visibly swollen, slightly erythematous, and tender to palpation. He has severe pain on passive and active range of motion. He has obvious deformities of the joints in his hands, which are chronic, and he has no other swollen, painful joints. There's no body rash and no eye findings. So, Dr. Ghosh, what would be your initial impression of this patient in general? The thing that worries me right off the hop is the multiple risk factors the gentleman has for bacterial arthritis. So my initial impression has me a little concerned. He's 81 years old. He's also been on low-dose prednisone. Oftentimes, I think we want to rush to a pre-existing diagnosis like rheumatoid and say it's a flare for that. But as we know, 
these are the people that actually have a higher risk of having septic arthritis. So from the little that I have there, I'm probably already worried about septic arthritis, and I probably want to go on to diagnostic testing as well. And Dr. Yaffe? No, I, I agree with Dr. Gosha 100%. Our topic today is hot joints, so it's no surprise you've presented somebody who's an acute monoarthritis. And this on the background of underlying arthritic disease, he's quasi-immunosuppressed on low-dose prednisone. And I think the other really salient point is that he's got one joint which is really inflamed out of proportion to all the others. So putting this all together, this is somebody in whom you need to consider and rule out a septic joint. Dr. Ghosh and Dr. Yaffe beautifully outlined the risk factors for septic arthritis. I like to think of the risk factors for septic arthritis in a triad. First, any patient with joint disease, especially rheumatoid arthritis, is at risk for septic arthritis. Second, any loss of skin integrity, for example, a history of IV drug use, having a history of ulcers, psoriasis, surgery, injection, dialysis, any loss in skin integrity will put you at risk for septic arthritis. And third, any immunocompromised state. So a patient like this one who's on chronic steroids, diabetes, HIV, all of these are risk factors for septic arthritis. Most of us are taught that we need to rule out infection first and foremost in patients who present with acute monoarthritis. Why should we care if this patient has septic arthritis? What makes septic arthritis a dangerous diagnosis? Well, the mortality. The mortality in septic arthritis is higher than any other acute monoarthritic disease. And it's something that you can alter. So it's very important to not only make the diagnosis, but also start your management plan early with these patients. Okay, so the mortality in some studies has been 10 to 30% or so. In some subpopulations, I can believe HIV, it's been as high as 50%. Dr. Yaffe, what in your real life experience do you think the mortality rate is? Do you think these numbers are exaggerated or... I guess one has to be a little bit careful about real-life experience, but I think, you know, when you look at reviews and, and research that's been done on acute arthritis in general, most of these are, are very skewed. Uh, you're probably not getting a representative sample in anybody. I think it's safe to say that there, there are local and systemic complications that you can avoid by early treatment, and I'm not sure that throwing around high mortality numbers does us a lot of service, but I think that we have to recognize that you've got a closed space infection that can cause local joint destruction and can cause systemic illness if not treated appropriately. Okay, so it can cause sepsis and sort of a full Absolutely. septic shock and lead to mortality in maybe 5-10% of patients, especially the ones who are immunocompromised and elderly and that kind of thing. And then locally, like you said, Things like joint destruction and long-term joint problems, osteomyelitis, in children, growth impairments, you know, if it causes enough joint destruction. So this diagnosis does have a significant morbidity and mortality. Now, in this patient, Dr. Yaffe, this patient has rheumatoid arthritis. Like you mentioned, Dr. Ghosh, you were worried more about this patient because they already have pre-existing joint disease. You know, the mortality rate with a patient who has rheumatoid arthritis and septic arthritis is, is much higher than uh, patients who, who don't have existing joint disease. And sometimes it's hard to tell whether a patient with rheumatoid arthritis is just having a rheumatoid flare. And like you said, Dr. Ghosh, 
often we just assume that it's a rheumatoid flare, but we have to be worried in some cases that it's septic arthritis. So Dr. Yaffe, what general points can you give our listeners about how to distinguish between a rheumatoid flare and a possible septic arthritis? I think it's safe to say that in general, a flare of rheumatoid arthritis does not classically present with a red, hot joint. You can have some swelling and you can have an, inf- an effusion, but you know these kinds of things that you take a look at from the bedside and it looks like it's obviously inflamed and infected, that's not typical for rheumatoid. So that's one of the things that can help us, but at the end of the day, your diagnosis is going to be based on uh, the results of joint aspiration and examination of the synovial fluid. Right. So with that, how do you decide who you're going to tap and who you aren't going to tap? You know, especially in someone with rheumatoid arthritis, they often get acute swollen joints that is just part of their rheumatoid arthritis. So how do you decide who you're going to tap? So I think... For the most part, it's safe to say that people who come to see us in the emergency department are there because there's something different, something unusual. Sometimes it's a simple matter that they can't get to their doctor, and they'll tell you, I'm having a flare, everything's normal, uh, and they may be there requesting an injection or something else to help. So for us, by and large, I think the approach should be tap every joint that comes in with acute pain, swelling, inflammation, and an effusion. That's out of proportion to their usual flares. Well, when people are coming in to see us, I think you have to assume that there's something unusual going on. We're not doing scheduled visits, so if they present to the emergency department with a painful joint, I think it's fair to say that in the vast majority of cases, we're going to aspirate the joint. Agreed. And in 2007, there was a JAMA review of over 6,000 patients, and they looked at features so greater than 80 years old, which the gentleman is, rheumatoid arthritis, which the gentleman has, and a bunch of other things, diabetes, prosthetic joint, recent joint surgery, skin infections, IV drug use, and past intraarticular steroids. And not only did all of these have uh, increased positive likelihood ratio, once you had a combination of two or more, it were actually synergistic in terms of the positive likelihood. So that puts this guy at risk. If you have a red, hot, swollen joint, it's usually septic arthritis or gout. The other thing I think to remember is, again, in terms of retrospective chart reviews, they say more than 50% of septic arthritis ends up in knees. So to me, uh, just dovetailing into Joel's point, if I get a hot swollen knee, I'm 100% tapping those. Those are easy to tap. I can get much more diagnostic yield, uh, although again, not 100% with it. So those should get tapped. Dr. Yaffe, the, the classic presentation of septic arthritis is a patient with one of the major risk factors or more, and the acute hot swollen knee or ankle with or without overlying cellulitis, often with fever, constitutional symptoms, non-weight bearing, with severe pain on passive range of motion. That's the classic presentation. What does the literature tell us about how good these signs and symptoms are in assessing the probability of septic arthritis? So, once again... Most of the literature reviews, they're retrospective, and the authors themselves will tell you that the data is not great. In the long run, there are a healthy number of people who will not have all of those things. 
So in terms of discriminating on the basis of absence of fever, not good enough to rule it out. Absence of redness, not good enough to rule it out. Obviously, you know, you should have some findings of acute arthritis, uh, the classic findings of effusion and, and limitation of range of motion, active and passive range of motion. So they should have acute arthritis. But once they've got that, the other features of your physical examination probably don't discriminate enough to allow us to rule out the diagnosis, which is what we're trying to do. Sure. And I guess it becomes more challenging because the patients who are at risk for septic arthritis are often the ones who have the more subtle findings. People who are immunocompromised, for example, might have more subtle findings, just like, just like in any infectious disease, you know, meningitis, for example. So we talked a little bit about the presentation of septic arthritis. Let's talk about the usefulness of blood work for ruling in or ruling out septic arthritis. Most of us will do a CBC to look at the white blood cell count, an ESR and or a CRP plus minus blood cultures for septic arthritis. If you look at the literature, the positive likelihood ratios for things like serum white blood cell, ESR and CRP are really not impressive at all. And most of these reviews conclude that there's no single blood test that significantly alters the probability of septic arthritis. What can you tell our listeners about what you use the serum blood test for and how they can help us? For me, most of the blood work I do, again, is for our consultants. I'm going to refer this patient. It's a good baseline to have in terms of monitoring therapy. If the white cell count is really elevated, I will look at the differential. But that, again, is to look for systemic illness and signs of sepsis, septicemia, etc. In combination, if the ESRC reactor protein and white cell count is high, you're probably a little bit more concerned, whereas if all are low, you're a little less concerned. Uh, I don't know that it would change a whole lot of my management in terms of moving on to the next step which is tapping the joint. In isolation, none of these tests really can drive decision-making. There are little bits of data that uh, may be helpful if you get a lot of abnormalities in a certain direction that may push you one way or push you another way. If you get really bizarre abnormalities, they may be push you to, to not ignore things. But at the end of the day, I agree with Dr. Ghosh, tapping the joint is going to be where the money is. So Dr. Yaffe... We all agree that these blood tests aren't that useful in ruling in or out the diagnosis. There have been some studies, for example, one in the Journal of Emergency Medicine in May of this year that was called Sensitivity of ESR and CRP for Exclusion of Septic Arthritis in Emergency Department Patients. And they found, again, in a retrospective analysis, that the sensitivity of ESR was 98% when they used a cutoff of 10 for an ESR. What do you make of this finding? Not so much. Everybody has always believed, and we still believe, that a higher ESR is more predictive of a septic joint than a lower ESR. And I don't think that this adds much more. If you look at their numbers, it was purely descriptive. They looked at a bunch of people with septic arthritis, and they looked at the distribution of ESRs. And more people had higher ESRs than not. If you look at the couple of outliers that had ESRs less than 10, if you calculate the confidence intervals, it could have been as much as 10%. So really, again, this is not going to really drive our decision-making. And the other thing is we don't really know from that data whether people with gout have a, have a really dissimilar distribution of ESRs as well. So my sense is that in a lot of the people that we're going to see, if we're hoping to get an ESR 
less than 10, A, we may not get it, and B, if you're really worried about a septic joint, that wouldn't be enough to put me off. The other thing is, it's important to remember what a normal ESR really is. And so in males, the upper limit of normal is age divided by two, and in females, it's age plus 10 divided by two. So the chances of getting an ESR less than 10 in any given patient is very slim to begin with, even if the joint is normal. One important last thing to mention about the blood work in terms of septic arthritis workup is the blood cultures. The most common way of bacteria getting into the joint in septic arthritis is through hematogenous spread. That's important to know because sometimes you'll actually get a positive blood culture, which will nail down the positive bacterial diagnosis, and your tap will be culture negative. So in patients who look sick with a possible septic joint, remember to do blood cultures because sometimes that'll be the only source of a positive bacterial diagnosis and help for management later on down the road. Let's talk a little bit about arthrocentesis. Arthrocentesis is the most important thing you can do in the workup of a patient with a hot swollen joint. You can think of it uh, like doing an LP for suspected meningitis. It's an essential skill that every emergency doctor should know. If you haven't developed the skills yet to do an arthrocentesis, you should. The, uh, the New England Journal of Medicine has a great video series online that can help you out. And for whatever reason, if you can't do it yourself, it's, if it's in a joint that you've never done it in or you feel uncomfortable, find someone else in your department to help you out or give the orthopedic surgeon a call and see if they can tap the joint for you. With regards to getting aspirations in joints, I completely agree, I think. More and more, we have to start increasing our residency program training in joint aspirations. And now with the emergence of emergency department ultrasounds uh, and its use increasing, I think that'll definitely be one area where we can use it. In fact, just recently through the CEUS, there was a case where a patient came in with a really painful joint. The emergency department doc saw an effusion in the hips, so sent him for formal ultrasound. The formal ultrasound tech did not see an effusion so the emergency doc then took the patient with her bedside ultrasound, drew the interventionalist, showed the diffusion, led to a tap, and it was a septic joint. So I think uh, just a little plug for our emergency department ultrasound and how we could actually use that to increase our skills in tapping joints. It's interesting how in emergency medicine we've developed certain skills that as a profession we feel comfortable with and others that we don't. And I have a sense that Many emergency physicians who are comfortable with chest tubes and central lines and maybe even cracking a chest are not comfortable when it comes to arthrocentesis. And the fact is that these, this is a skill that even if you've never done it, the landmarks are pretty straightforward and the potential for harm to the patient is very low while the potential for benefit is huge. So I, I think that just as a profession, we have to say to ourselves, this is a skill that we can attempt, even if we've never done it. And you may find the other thing is that a lot of the consultants have not done many more than, than you have as well. So a plug for arthrocentesis again, with or without ultrasound. In terms of contraindications to arthrocentesis, there are a few. One situation where you might want to consult before arthrocentesis is in the patient that has an overlying soft tissue infection because you run the chance of introducing bacteria into an otherwise uninfected joint. It's important to be aware that many patients with septic arthritis will have some overlying erythema, so don't assume that this erythema is a cellulitis and declare a contraindication to the TAP. 
A careful physical usually differentiates between a septic joint without cellulitis and a septic joint with cellulitis. What about other contraindications? Patients with bleeding disorders or on anticoagulants can be a challenge, and the risk must be weighed against the benefits on an individual basis. However, most experts would still recommend tapping an easily accessible joint like the knee in a patient with an elevated INR, for example. Next, Dr. Yaffe is going to talk about the not-so-uncommon presentation of the post-op patient in terms of whether we should be doing an arthrocentesis on their hot swollen joints or not. The hard part for us is, is the, the post-operative joint that presents with pain and swelling because that's not an uncommon scenario. And in relative terms, while surgeries are a risk factor for infection, most of the people who come into our eMERGE who've had recent surgery and have a painful swollen joint will not have infection. So uh, our orthopods who see all of these people are very reluctant to put a needle into those joints and potentially introduce infection, which would be catastrophic. Uh, And you know what, thinking back on it, that might be the patient where all of these other tests that we don't normally love, but your ESR and your white count and all of these other things might drive your decision-making a little bit. Uh, And that might be the setting where you can say, I don't really want to tap this, and I'm going to look at everything else to convince myself uh, that there's no infection. So in terms of your sort of more absolute contraindications, Dr. Yaffe, any prosthetic joint or recent surgery, that's the purview of the surgeon. And I've been in situations where I even suggest tapping the joint and the surgeon hits the ceiling So I agree, that's my practice too, that any patient who's had recent surgery or has a prosthetic joint will be referred for a tap. That's an interesting comment you made about the blood work, that that might help to sway you one way or another. So in that case, you might do the blood work, blood work comes back, and then you can speak to the surgeon and say, well, I'm a little bit worried it might be septic because their ESR and white blood cell count are sky high. Do you want to come and take a look at them and see if they need a tap? I think when doing an arthrocentesis, it's important to remember that it's not just a diagnostic modality, but it has some therapeutic basis as well. Uh, Some people with crystal arthritis will feel better with the aspiration alone, and certainly repeated aspiration or repeated joint drainage is part of treatment of septic arthritis. So when you're going to aspirate, we should probably be prepared to drain as much fluid as we can on the initial aspiration. Draining Uh, pus is good. Draining pus is good. Okay. Good general rule. We often see patients with elbow bursitis. And sometimes it's swollen, it's red, and it's hot. How do you decide which of these patients, if any, need a TAP and or antibiotic treatment? So I will routinely tap an olecranon bursitis if it's got any signs of acute inflammation. Now and then you see some people who bump their elbow and they've got a very bland looking bursitis that's not really painful and not tender and those I'm happy to leave alone. But if they're red, hot, swollen, painful, I tap them. It's easy to do. It's diagnostic. It's much easier than putting the needle into the joint. And if there is infection, the tap can be part of the treatment as well as diagnostic. Okay. And in terms of the treatment of uh, bursitis that's infected versus septic arthritis, I guess first, how can you be sure that 
that it's just a bursitis and not septic arthritis as well. And second, if once you, if you are convinced that it's just a bursitis, how is the management different? So the diagnosis of bursitis versus arthritis comes back to your physical examination. Bursitis is extra-articular, so generally you'll get some localized tenderness, some pain perhaps in a plane of motion, but a, you know, a hot joint is going to have findings in all directions, all planes of motion, and tenderness is not usually localized, so it's a clinical diagnosis. And you know, the bursas, the swelling is different from in the joint. So I think distinguishing it certainly, you can get a pretty swollen elbow, but you probably won't find an effusion in the joint. Same with prepatellar bursitis. In terms of treatment, less of an issue because the issue, the propensity for joint destruction, the propensity for, for systemic manifestations is less. Uh, these people can be aspirated. They can be treated with antibiotics with close follow-up and uh, return for serial aspirations if need be. Sure. So do you give these patients oral antibiotics or do you give them IV antibiotics, the ones with uh, bursitis that you think is infected? Or It depends how bad it looks. And, yeah. I, you know, I think this is a larger issue of IV versus oral antibiotics. I mean, the oral antibiotics we're using these days have such high absorption rates that if they're well, they can probably take oral. The only difficulty is that some bursitis is crystal-based. So you can get crystal-based bursitis as well, which can look indistinguishable. So the benefits of your TAP are that if you treat them and you're culture negative in a couple of days and they've significantly improved, you may avoid prolonged antibiotics. Your classic bursitis, housemaid's knee, these can often look pretty inflamed when they come in and they're not infected. There was a case I saw a week and a half ago of a worker who came in. He was a tiler. His knee had been bothering him. He had had pre- and infrapatellar bursitis in the past, but suddenly, over the last 24 hours, his knee had just gotten dramatically worse, and he came in with redness all around the knee, which extended pretty well down to his ankle. It looked, for all intents and purposes, like it was infected. In this guy, we tapped the infrapatellar bursa, so we tapped the infrapatellar bursa, got some fluid, sent it for culture. He was culture negative and he improved quickly and we were able to avoid a prolonged course of antibiotics in him. So with bursas, they're easily accessible. And I think that a lot of the ones that look inflamed may not in fact be infected. So there's more and more use of bedside ultrasound these days. And one of the indications is using it to help you guide arthrocentesis. There was an RCT that showed that although there's no difference in arthrocentesis success, patients do report less pain and the total time of procedure is actually shorter if you use the ultrasound uh, and docs also find it easier to perform. Perhaps even more importantly, more than aspiration, is to make the call off an effusion. Uh, someone comes in with a, you know, like a painful hip, for example, very difficult to determine whether there's a fusion in a hip. To be able to use a diagnostic imaging bedside very quickly to determine that there is an effusion drastically changes your disposition of this patient. All right, so getting back to our case of the 81-year-old with a history of rheumatoid arthritis who comes in with a painful swollen wrist, he was tapped and his arthrocentesis showed a joint white blood cell count of 48,000 and a negative gram stain. Now, the classic textbook cutoffs for synovial white blood cell count for septic arthritis is 50,000 with more than 75% PMNs and a positive gram stain in culture. 
while on the other hand, a joint white blood cell count of less than 50,000 with less than 75 PMNs, they say according to the textbooks, indicates a non-infectious inflammatory cause. What does the literature tell us about how useful the synovial fluid tests are in ruling in or out septic arthritis, and how useful are these cutoffs? In terms of literature, the JAMA 2007 article, which has the largest number, 6,242 patients, they had positive likelihood ratios associated with greater than 50,000, greater than 75,000, and greater than 100,000. But again, in keeping in terms of sensitivity and ruling out, it's at less than 25,000 negative likelihood ratio of 0.32. The point at the end of the day is the higher white cell count you have in your synovial fluid, you're a little bit more concerned about septic arthritis in these patients, but there is no cutoff and there's not going to be. And again, if you look at this patient specifically, he's 81 years old, he's on low-dose prednisone. As Dr. Yaffe mentioned, this guy is quasi-immunosuppressed. So a 48,000 count, what does that mean in him versus someone who's immunocompetent and 34 years old? So it doesn't help me a whole lot one way or the other. Uh, again, it may guide therapy as, I, uh, as we start therapy, but that's not for us. It's for the consultants anyhow. It's interesting. In one of the review papers that looked at the ESR and acute arthritis, some of their data, their other data that they found, I think uh, 25% of their patients with septic arthritis had uh, synovial fluid counts less than 40,000. So we can think about likelihood ratios, but I think the message is that every data point we have is just part of the puzzle. It's not going to make or break our decision. While a higher joint white blood cell count does increase the chances of septic arthritis and a lower joint white blood cell count will decrease your chances, there shouldn't be any cutoff because there's lots of cases where you have a low joint white blood cell count where they rule in for septic arthritis, and there's lots of cases where you have a high joint white blood cell count where it ends up being something else like gout. You know, I, I think, as with anything, when you get values at the extremes, you have to take it seriously. I think most of us, if we tap a joint and get a, get a, a cell count of 100,000, it's going to take an awful lot of convincing to make us believe that's not septic. So we're going to say that's a septic joint. If you tap a joint and you get a non-inflammatory cell count, you know, you get a few hundred white cells, that's not a septic joint. Okay. But in the middle, it's anybody's game. Okay. And how about the, the PMNs? Do you find those useful in guiding you? So the literature says that a PMN count of 90% is associated with a higher likelihood of infection. What we don't know is how many patients with gout have 90% polys. And that's what really drives us crazy, right? The patient who you really believe that they've got gout, uh, maybe much like this patient, and you tap them and you get a cell count of 65,000 and the polys are a little bit high, but they're telling you, doc, this is my gout. Right. And that's the thing that really is difficult for us. So again, you take it seriously, but you got to look at the whole patient. I see. Okay. So the textbook cutoff of 75% for PMNs, the recent literature will say if you are going to use a cutoff, it should be more like 90%. But of course, we shouldn't be using any strict cutoffs. But just as a guide, if it's over 90%, it makes it more likely that it's septic arthritis. If it's, I guess, well under 90%, then it makes it a little bit less likely. But again, it's just you have to take it in the context of the whole picture. One uh, interesting thing I found in, in the literature review was that in your synovial fluid analysis, if there's eosinophilia, 
then we have to think about uh, Lyme disease, parasitic infections, and neoplasm. So that goes higher up on the differential if you see that. An okay. interesting tidbit. So that's about the joint white blood cell and the joint PMNs. Well, how about the gram stain and culture? When I started my practice, I assumed that gram stain and culture had a pretty good negative predictive value in ruling out septic arthritis when they were negative. But I've come to learn that the gram stain only has a sensitivity of about 50% in non-gonococcal septic arthritis, and the culture sensitivity is only about 80%. Importantly, in patients in whom bacteria are not isolated from the joint, there's bugs detected in the blood culture in about 10%, and from other sources in about 7%, reinforcing the importance of appropriate cultures in a patient who you suspect has septic arthritis. Dr. Yaffe is now going to comment on the sensitivity of gram stain in septic arthritis. It depends on if it's gram positive or gram negative organisms. I think gram positives, you have a higher yield yeah. from your gram stain and from your cultures. Okay. But all comers, uh, it's going to be lower, obviously. All right. So this patient had a negative gram stain. That, again, certainly doesn't rule out septic right. arthritis. Dr. Yaffe is going to put this all into perspective now with a great analogy with patients who present to the emergency room with chest pain and how we should be risk stratifying patients with septic arthritis, just like we risk stratify patients with chest pain in the emergency department. It's interesting to me that as clinicians, we're extremely comfortable doing exactly what Dr. Ghosh mentioned when it comes to chest pain. We do a multifactorial assessment. We never hang our hats on one test or on one physical finding or on one other diagnostic modality. And this is something we do every day, several times a shift. And we recognize that there is a margin of error in what we do, but we've become comfortable with it. And that's how we teach now. It's interesting then when it comes to something like septic arthritis, we are less comfortable in the fact that there's some uncertainty. And at times, the best you can do is put together as much data as you can and look at what you've got and make a decision based on, on the risk profile. It's important to remember the vast majority of people that we see with hot joints will not be infected. And so we can't really afford to adopt a default position that says this is an infected joint when it really isn't. So history, physical, synovial fluid analysis, put it all together, uh, establish a risk profile, and then treat appropriately. And follow-up is really integral. Right. I like that analogy with chest pain. Gathering all your data together, you know, so far we've talked about what the risk factors are, we've talked about what the classic presentation is, that sometimes it can be subtle, we talked about the blood tests that can sway you a little bit one way or the other, and now we're talking about the joint aspiration tests, again, that you shouldn't be using cutoffs, but they can sway you, it's collecting all this data together and then putting patient in a high, medium, or low risk, and then deciding what to do from there. Great. For the joints that are very difficult to access, like a hip joint or an SI joint, how useful is formal ultrasound in helping you diagnose septic arthritis? So for joints that you, you can't aspirate, your diagnostic imaging department can be helpful either with ultrasound or CT-guided uh, aspirations. Let's say a patient comes in with a hot joint and you're not sure if it's gout or septic arthritis and you find crystals on the synovial fluid analysis. Does the presence of crystals in a joint aspirate rule out septic arthritis? It does not. 
It's just another piece that may push you in a certain direction, but certainly it's well documented that crystals and infection can coexist. Okay. So again, a patient who has recurrent gout, they have a chronic joint disease and they're at increased risk for septic arthritis, just like any other patient with joint disease. So the finding of crystal arthritis can coexist with septic arthritis. It absolutely can. Now, this is going to start to confuse the listeners because at the end of the day, you have to make some decisions, right? But if you have reason to believe strongly enough that it's infected, then the presence of crystals should not push you away from that concern. Right. So again, it goes back to the clinical picture. I guess if the patient who's had recurrent gout says, this is exactly like my gout that I've had before, treat me for my gout, please as opposed to the patient who comes in with recurrent gout who says, this is way more swollen than it usually is or anything different, you know, I'm feeling kind of systemically ill or anything that makes you think that it might not be their usual gout, that's when you might be more concerned about a coexisting septic arthritis. Yes. So let's get back to our patient here. Let's say we've decided that this patient is in your high risk category for septic arthritis. How are you going to manage this patient? There is not a lot of evidence-based data for treatment of septic arthritis. I think the commonest organism is still Staph aureus, so you have to cover for Staph. And if you have significant presence in your area of MRSA, I think you need to cover for MRSA because this is a serious infection. I don't think we have any good data on how common MRSA might infect a joint, but I think it's a serious infection. And so I would start with vancomycin. And... The literature is a little bit up in the air as to whether you should also add some gram-negative coverage in patients in whom you have a negative gram stain. Uh, Obviously, if you know it's gram-positive, vanco would probably be enough. If you have a negative gram stain, you think it's infected, I would probably start with some gram-negative coverage as well. So a reasonable first approach, I'd give a gram of vanco, and I'd give a couple of grams of ceftriaxone. At that point, the person's going to be referred and admitted and maybe get an ID consult, maybe not, but coverage could continue on from there. So, Dr. Ghosh, it seems like steroids have been shown to be a benefit in a lot of different emergency medicine diseases that we see, even infectious diseases like meningitis, for example. Mm-hmm. And there has been some pediatric literature that shows that dexamethasone might be beneficial in kids with septic arthritis. Can you tell us a little bit about what the role of steroids might be in the treatment of septic arthritis? Sure. So this is the way I look at it. Obviously, it makes sense in any kind of inflammatory disease, secondary infection, that an anti-inflammatory might help. There's good evidence in standard of care in in pediatric diseases such as asthma, group meningitis, as Dr. Hellman mentioned. Uh, The small RCT done in uh, specifically in this subset of patients in pediatric was less than 50 patients that showed a dose of dexamethasone reduced the period uh, of clinical symptoms. Very small RCT. Bottom line for me, I don't interpret this data as something that I would use yet for a couple of reasons. One is it's a small study, and I think we need to probably study this a little bit more extensively. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, again, keeping with the same line and thesis of what our scope of practice is, I'm more likely to use medication for a patient where how soon I inject this drug is going to have an impact on the patient's mortality, morbidity, etc. And that hasn't been borne out. And so if these are patients that I'm going to refer to the consultant, which I almost always am, I will let them make that decision in terms of ongoing therapy if that's something they want to add on to the arsenal. 
if something comes in the literature that shows that adding steroids in within X period of time has an impact on the patient, then it's something that we have to, at that point, look at and see. But right now, it's not something I would use routinely at all. Okay. So while there's been some small studies in kids that it might be beneficial in terms of their uh, time to recovery, it's not prime time right now, but we should maybe be on the lookout if anyone's looking to do some studies. Here's a good study. Stay Ster- tuned. Steroids in adult septic arthritis. All right. Dr. Yaffe, in the old days, almost every patient with septic arthritis went to the OR for open drainage. What are the current management strategies for septic arthritis beyond the antibiotics and maybe in the future some possible steroids? I think in this case, it's, it's good to understand what the definitive management is for these patients. Could you just tell us a little bit about what the surgeons do with these patients? So to some degree, it depends on who gets their hands on the patient first, mm-hmm. whether it's a, a surgeon, uh, an orthopedic surgeon or a rheumatologist. The literature says that if you've got an accessible joint, then there's no benefit to open drainage versus uh, serial closed aspirations. So that lets out hips, for example, which need to go to the OR because they're just not accessible. The consultant physicians tend to have their preferences, and I think some orthopedic surgeons prefer to take their patients to the OR. But in general, you can treat these people with serial closed aspiration provided that you've got an accessible joint. So if they've got a knee or an ankle that could be serially aspirated, they could be treated medically with serial aspiration. Patients that are sick, people who failed aspiration, people with prosthetic joints, these people are more likely to end up in the operating room. Great, so let's move on to our second case. The second case is out of a 74-year-old woman who presents to your ED late in the evening with the chief complaint of painful feet, which developed gradually over five days. She was seen two days prior and diagnosed with cellulitis of one foot and put on cephalexin. Now the other foot is involved and the pain is localized to the first MTP joint on both sides. She reports no fever, no constitutional symptoms, no photosensitivity, no dysuria, no sore throat, no other rash and no other swollen or painful joints. She has no history of gout, but she does have an extensive medical history, including diabetes, hypertension, CHF, AFib, onwarfarin, and chronic renal failure. On exam, she appears very uncomfortable and doesn't want the sheets touching her feet. Her vitals are stable with a normal temperature. On examination of her feet, she appears to have classic pedagra of gouty arthritis bilaterally. There's no other rash, no conjunctivitis, no tophi, and no other swollen joints. So, Dr. Yaffe, in general, what would be your approach to this patient? Are you concerned? How would you manage them? What's, what are your general thoughts about this patient? You've given me a patient with what seems to be an acute arthritis of their first MTP joint, bilateral, clinically extremely low likelihood of being infected. Uh, this is a pretty classic presentation of gout. I'd be happier if it was a male and making the diagnosis of gout, but we know that elderly women can get gout. The other differential is pseudopodagra, where you can get hydroxyapatite disease. But they're both crystal-based inflammatory diseases and uh, need to be treated as such. I think this is probably the one exception to 
you know, my rule that you have to tap the joints because I don't think you're going to be able to tap these or get any fluid from them. So my thoughts are, this is probably crystal. And unless I had some really overriding suspicion that it was infection, I think they need to be treated with anti-inflammatory of some kind. And that's going to pose a bit of a dilemma because the person cannot be given an NSAID. I think this is somebody who's going to need to have prednisone and close follow-up. Okay. They can't be given an NSAID because of their past medical history. So they have a whole bunch of reasons why NSAIDs would be problematic. Renal insufficiency, warfarin, congestive heart failure, hypertension. Need I say more? Right. (laughs) Okay. And so, Dr. Yaffe, what other tests would you consider doing in this patient and why? The only other test that may be helpful, but probably more after the fact, is, you know, we know that, that... Uric acid levels can be low or normal in an acute attack. It may be unhelpful. If it's elevated, uh, it it can increase our suspicion that this is gout, but it's not really going to change my management initially. If you suspect that this patient has gout, do you find x-rays useful? So, you know, some people who come in with gout will have had some ongoing problems for a while and with long-standing gout you can get uh, joint erosions and if you see them it might be helpful but if you don't see them it doesn't mean that they don't have a first episode of gout. So I have to say I do x-rays. I don't think I'm great at looking for subtle signs of of gout uh, but sometimes if you see erosions uh, it can be helpful. Dr. Ghosh, is there anything in the literature that can help us decide whether a patient has gout or not? The one interesting study was in Archives Internal Medicine of 2010. It was a Dutch study that basically looked at deriving a clinical decision rule about 328 patients with monoarthritis only uh, without joint fluid analysis. And what they looked at, interestingly enough, is some of the traditional risk factors that we know for gout. So they looked at uh, male previous uh, arthritis attack, onset within 24 hours, joint redness, uh, first MTP involvement, hypertension, and hyperuricemia. And then they assigned points to each risk factor, and then they stratified them in three risk stratas, the highest having a score of eight or more uh, with 82.5% prevalence. I agree with Dr. Yaffe with regards to this case to not tap this patient. Uh, It sounds like a classic gout. The things uh, that make me think it's non-classical is female, and I'm a little... I get a little wary when there's more than uh, one joints uh, with gout, but the fact that it's classic Pythagorean in, in both MTPs would initially make me uh, treat this patient as gout and then probably arrange a follow-up, and I would not do any initial testing on these patients, including uh, uric acid levels, because we know that people without gout uh, can also have uh, increased uric acid levels who've never had a gouty attack. Uh, and we know that people in the middle of a gouty attack can have normal uric acid levels. So it's not something that I really hang my hat on or do initially up front. So let's assume that your working diagnosis is gout. You know, gout is the most common acute monoarthritis. It's about five times more common than septic arthritis and is typically in the first MTP joint, ankle, or knee. Although just like septic arthritis, it can be in any joint. The risk factors for acute gout are patients on diuretics, especially if they get dehydrated, patients with cardiovascular risk factors, like in this case, and patients who eat a lot of red meat and drink a lot of beer and hard liquor. Interestingly, wine doesn't increase the risk of gout. So I like to usually think of the risk factors of gout in the image of a middle-aged guy with a huge beer belly standing at the barbecue, eating burgers in one hand and a beer in the other hand on a hot summer day. 
the elderly can be a little bit tricky to diagnose because they present a little bit differently than in young patients. First, they're more likely to have polyarticular involvement than monoarticular involvement compared to young people. Also, they're more likely to have upper extremity involvement, which is not typical of gout, as well as a more indolent course. So they might have three, four, five, six days of a gradually progressive arthritis compared to a 24-hour more acute onset, as would be typical in the younger patient. The one thing that makes it a little bit easier in the elderly is that they're more likely to develop TOFI. So make sure on the physical exam for someone who you suspect might have gout to look for TOFI, because that can help to clinch the diagnosis. Dr. Yaffe is now going to drive home the point with a case that he had. It reminds me of a patient that I saw a couple of years ago who presented with older woman, polyarticular disease, both lower extremities and hands, and it was pretty typical for an older woman with gout. So Dr. Yaffe, this patient has a lot of contraindications to NSAIDs. When would you consider oral NSAIDs versus oral prednisone versus intraarticular methylprednisolone for the treatment of gout in the ED? So this is a good question. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with personal preference. NSAIDs are fine for treatment of gout, provided one recognizes that not everybody should get an NSAID. If you have congestive heart failure, if you have poorly controlled hypertension, if you have a history of GI bleeding, if you have renal insufficiency, I don't think it's a drug you're going to want to run to. Most of the gout that I see is monoarticular, and if I think that this is a low-risk inflammatory disease, I will judiciously uh, inject steroids into a joint, provided that I can get fluid for analysis, it's an accessible joint, and the patient is going to be available for follow-up should they get worse. We said in our septic arthritis case that gout and septic arthritis can coincide. So that kind of throws a little wrench into it because we don't, we don't want to be injecting steroids into a septic joint. So which patients do you select for intraarticular steroid injections? So once I've decided after my history and my physical and my synovial fluid analysis that I think the joint is not septic and that's somebody that I'm going to be sending home without antibiotics, then I feel it's safe to inject the joint. I tell the patient, you should get better in the next couple of days. And I think the risk is not putting steroids into this joint. The risk is telling the person, go home, and if it's not better in a few weeks, come back. I think people who get steroids for gout should get a pretty quick response in the next day or so and should not get worse. Um, And it's interesting, you know, we talked about the use of steroids as adjunctive therapy for gout. Oops, I think he meant steroids as adjunctive therapy for septic arthritis, not gout. There's also some animal data that shows when they injected steroids into joints and, and covered them for septic arthritis, in fact, they did better. So I'm not sure it's the steroids that are the problem, it's injecting somebody and not doing the follow-up. But I just want to be clear, I I don't do this recklessly. I do a risk assessment on my patients, and I will do this in people that I have made a diagnosis. This is crystal disease. In terms of if you're treating with either NSAIDs or prednisone, uh, there's a belief among the rheumatology community, and I don't know how much science there is, but certainly their, their combined experience suggests that A lot of people with simple gout need a good 10 days of treatment. 
that if you try to treat them with really short courses, you'll get initial good response, but then they rebound back. So I think if you're going to treat orally, then you need to be prepared to treat for 10 days or so. My, my practice is to start them on Invisid, 50 milligrams TID, have them do that until the symptoms resolve, and then I taper it and then you know tell them to do a BID for a few days and then once a day for a few days. Yeah. And in fact, you can probably pick any anti-inflammatory. There's probably no benefit to indomethacin over something like naproxen or even ibuprofen, depending on patient's ability to afford the drugs. In family practice, there's a lot of use of colchicine, allopurinol for patients with gout. When, if ever, would you consider giving colchicine to treat gout in the ED? I have not used colchicine because I haven't found the literature base up until recently was enough to to change my practice. But there was a, a pretty good study last year, the AGREE study, which really showed that you could give low-dose colchicine for short periods in an easily tolerable regimen and pretty quick response. The problem with colchicine is that it has to be given early on in the disease. So when they studied the drug, it was given within about 12 hours of symptom onset. You don't want to give it to people who've had symptoms for a couple of days. It's unlikely to provide the benefit, as far as we know now. But um, uh, for the readers that are interested, there's an AGREE trial. Uh, They gave 1.2 milligrams initially, and then 0.6 milligrams in an hour, uh, which is very easy to give. Patients don't need to go on prolonged courses of treatment, and uh, they had significant symptomatic relief in about 24 hours. But again, early presenters, less than 12 hours. So just to add on to that AGREE trial, I also thought thought the, the, the study was very interesting. It actually compared the low dose, or what they call this low dose, which is what Dr. Yaffe has talked about, versus the traditional high dose. And they showed there was no difference in outcomes, but a lot less adverse effects. So the, the risk-to-benefit ratio with the, with the new lower dose of colchicine was, was better. Having said that, again, what Dr. Yaffe mentioned is the, the value of it seems to be an abortive medication. So patients who know their gout and know when they're beginning to feel a flare-up of their gout coming, you educate them and you have them keep the colchicine with them and they start this, those are the people that I think it will help. My feeling is people who come to emergency, by the time they've come to emergency with acute, I don't think that colchicine will be helpful in these patients. I, like Dr. Jaffe, have not used colchicine in emergency patients. I stick with either NSAIDs or systemic steroids, depending on, again, indications, contraindications. Intraarticular steroids are usually reserved for people who are refractory to systemic therapy with either NSAIDs or, or systemic steroids. So upfront, I usually will give oral NSAIDs or, or steroids. There are quite a few contraindications to colchicine. Can you just run through for us who not to give colchicine to? I think probably the drug is a lot safer than what we're made to believe. So traditionally, people with hepatic impairment, it's a no-no. And people with renal impairment as well. But having said that, I know the dialysis people who, there's a heavy burden of gout in their population, they do use colchicine. And uh, they haven't really found a problem. And I suspect that in the low doses that we're using, it's probably not going to be an issue. But the simple course would be, you know, if you've got a, if you're a cirrhotic, I'm not going to use colchicine. There's also potential for drug interactions if they're on uh, erythromycins, if they're on cyclosporin. So I, I think, you know, it's fair to say that with unusual drugs, that's when you want to pull out your drug interaction software anyways. And we have other things that we can use, so we probably don't have to look for colchicine if there's soft 
contraindications? Before we leave the medications for gout, there's a lot of patients who come to the emergency departments who are on allopurinol already for their recurrent gout. We do know that we don't want to start allopurinol on a patient with gout because it actually transiently increases their uric acid levels and actually can make their disease worse. So allopurinol de novo in the emergency department is a no-no. But for those patients who are already on allopurinol, what do we do with uh, their allopurinol if they present to the emergency room with a case of acute gout? Do we maintain them on the same dose of allopurinol? Do we stop their allopurinol? What do you do? So I don't interrupt allopurinol. So I, I tell them to continue uh, as they've been taking the allopurinol. The only caveat is if they have started it uh, very recently. And I feel that starting the course of allopurinol in the recent few days to a week has potentially precipitated this flare of gout, then I may ask them to stop and follow up with either the rheumatologist or the family doctor. Uh, but other than that, I ask them to not interrupt allopurinol. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I guess the role for allopurinol then is after their acute gout is completely resolved, then they can see their primary care physician and based on their uric acid levels, they can determine whether the patient could, should go on allopurinol for prevention of another acute attack. Yeah, I I agree. And I I mean, even going further than that, I don't think we want to do anything acutely to modify uric acid levels in either direction. I think raising them or lowering them in an acute attack. And so if you notice that somebody's on some other offending drug, leave everything alone, treat the inflammation, and afterwards, it's time to do things to modify uric acid levels. Okay. And what about patients who are on diuretics? I mean, a lot of patients... Leave it alone. Yeah, a lot of patients, you know, who are who change their dose and their let's say they go up on their dose in diuretic or they've just started a new diuretic, that's what triggers their gout. Um, would you recommend stopping their diuretics? Or? So again, my understanding is that any shifts in uric acid levels can can potentiate the reaction or trigger the reaction. So our role is to diagnose, treat the inflammatory response, and secondary prevention is for another time. Dr. Yaffe, what are some of the other less common but important diagnoses we should consider in patients with acute monoarthritis besides gout, septic arthritis, and occult trauma? The big first one to think of is uh, CPPD disease or pseudogout. So for me, the classic presentation is an older woman who comes in with a very painful, red, swollen wrist, They've got an effusion. They've got a clinical arthritis. And often they'll tell you that they might have fallen and injured it a few days ago, but it was okay. And so sometimes trauma can precipitate CPPD arthritis. And for me, this is not too uncommon. I'll see a couple of these a year. So it can be treated much the same way as gout is treated. You have to try to aspirate the joint. And again, because of the the patient population, I prefer to inject the joint if I can after I get fluid. The other one is hydroxyapatite disease, which is more of a, usually a periarthritis. And again, very profound inflammatory changes around the joint. In the right population, you have to be concerned. Uh, Dialysis patients are often at risk. And we mentioned kind of the pseudopodagra that older women can get with that. So there's a couple of other things. I remember a young woman actually I saw who came in with a really intense swollen hand uh, on the dorsum, a lot of inflammatory changes, had no idea what it was. X-rayed her, she had these fluffy infiltrates 
a classic for hydroxyapatite disease and treated her and on re-x-ray they were gone. So one of those things to keep in mind, uh, not the most common, but between the two things, I think those are easy for us as emergency physicians to remember and look for. Great. Okay. So the hydroxyapatite disease on x-ray, you might see these fluffy infiltrates as you call them? That's right. Okay. We'll try and put a, a picture of a, an x-ray with hydroxyapatite disease on the written summary. Great. The other thing I want to add is the, uh, the pseudogout. You know, I've become, in the last three, four years, very good at spotting chondrocalcinosis now in knees and uh, and wrists. So this is one area where I feel x-rays can be helpful uh, if you do detect chondrocalcinosis. In, uh, and most of the pseudogout that I've seen are not red. They, they're warm and they're fusion, but they're not as red and as inflammatory looking as gout. Um, but the x-rays certainly clinch the diagnosis for you. So pseudogout, I feel the x-rays uh, definitely do help a fair bit. Okay, great. So try and get a, a picture of pseudogout as well. So x-rays do have a role in acute monoarthritis, pseudogout, hydroxyapatite disease. In gout, you can sometimes see erosions. And if there's an o- obvious osteomyelitis, you can usually, but not always, see that on x-ray. So while x-rays usually aren't helpful... In the small subset of patients, it might be helpful. It might actually clinch the diagnosis. Okay, so we've talked about septic arthritis. We've talked about gout and pseudogout. Let's go on to case number three. Case number three is that of a 30-year-old man who presents to your ED with multiple swollen lower extremity joints and a rash. He's unable to weight bear. He was at another ED two days earlier where the diagnosis was unclear. He reports no fever, no eye symptoms, no sore throat, no dysuria or penile discharge, no STD risk factors, except that he has had multiple sexual partners. His past medical history is unremarkable. On exam, his vitals are normal, except for a heart rate of 105. He appears to be in pain. He has swelling of both knees and the right ankle and significant periarticular erythema. His blood work is drawn and comes back with a white blood cell count of 13 and an ESR of 50. His right knee is aspirated and he has a joint white blood cell count of 40,000 and a negative gram stain. So, Dr. Yaffe, what else in this patient would you want to know or would you want to order up? So, this is a man who's got, looks like, articular and periarticular involvement. Young person, not in the right demographic for classic crystal disease, doesn't seem to be a septic arthritis. You would want to worry about a gonococcal arthritis in this patient. So, I think you at least have to, one, entertain the diagnosis and then, two, culture everything to try to make the diagnosis. And the cultures could include rectal, pharyngeal, if there's skin lesions, culture those. Why is it so important to do, say, pharyngeal swabs and maybe rectal swabs and skin swabs for the patients with gonococcal arthritis? In septic arthritis, non-gonococcal septic arthritis, the yield is going to be from the joint fluid primarily, even though it's got some limitations. In gonococcal arthritis, the yield from the joint fluid is pretty low less than 25%. So you have to look elsewhere to get your source and your yields are going to be higher in the source of primary infection, which is, again, uh, urinary tract, urethra, throat, rectum, skin lesions. And why is that, that the yield is so low for synovial fluid in patients with gonococcal arthritis? It sounds like 
least some of these patients, the arthritis that you get is a is a reactive arthritis rather than a primary source of infection. So Dr. Yaffe, what is the typical presentation of gonococcal arthritis and what in this case would make you think of the diagnosis? So, I, I mean, it's a great question because I think the simple answer is that there's probably not a typical presentation, that it, there's quite a spectrum of disease. Uh, you know, traditionally there was the purulent arthritis versus dermatitis arthritis pictures. And so the dermatitis arthritis was classically a triad of skin rash, tenosynovitis, and, a, and an arthritis that could be polyarticular, monoarticular. There's probably a huge crossover. The things that twig it for me are where there is joint involvement, there's usually a lot of periarticular involvement. And so that should be something in a younger person with a lot of periarticular redness and swelling. You should be thinking maybe this is uh, gonococcal arthritis. Obviously, the classic skin lesions that we're used to seeing, these, which can be quite variable, but sometimes look like little pustular lesions and sometimes more bullous lesions, we should consider that as well. And if there are other symptoms associated with STDs, STIs, I guess we should say, but you often don't get those. So you just have to keep your feelers open in the right, in the right demographic. And when you've got rash, skin findings, multiple joints, I'd be concerned. How would you manage this patient who you suspect might have gonococcal arthritis? It's generally recommended, probably you're going to start with a parenteral third-generation cephalosporin for a, at least a couple of days. And then once you've got clinical improvement, they can be switched to uh, an oral drug like uh, like Cifixime to complete a seven-day course, maybe longer if you've got purulent arthritis. And you should also treat for chlamydia as well, concomitantly. It's not okay. going to help the arthritis, but the two kind of hang out together, so it's a good idea. Sure. And then there's all the usual contact precautions mm-hmm. and getting any recent sexual partners in to see physicians as well. There was an interesting case. It was my first month out as a staff of a 20 or 21-year-old lady who came in uh, with polyarthralgia and arthritis. In fact, uh, when I examined her, who said she had intermittent fever, but vehemently denied any sexual activity refused vaginal swabs. It was a challenge because clinically she fit the picture and luckily she allowed a throat swab and the throat swab actually came back positive for gonorrhea. So just goes to show uh, the importance of swabbing uh, everything and even uh, patients who give a negative history to just be a little bit more careful. Maybe she hadn't had vaginal intercourse but she obviously had contracted uh, gonorrhea. All right, so in this case, the patient did grow gonococcus from a pharyngeal swab. He was admitted on IV ceftriaxone and sent home three days later on PO suffixin. One important thing to know about gonococcal arthritis versus non-gonococcal septic arthritis is that gonococcal arthritis causes nowhere near the amount of joint destruction than septic arthritis does. And so the morbidity and mortality is much, much lower in gonococcal arthritis than it is in non-gonococcal septic arthritis. So we've talked about monoarthritis. In our last case, we had a patient with polyarthritis. I want to talk a little bit more specifically now about polyarthritis, and we'll do this in the context of this fourth case. The fourth case is that of a 40-year-old man who presents to your ED with severe foot and ankle pain and swelling that's developed gradually over 10 days. He reports feeling feverish and having difficulty walking. 
He had two bouts of diarrhea at the onset that has resolved now. He reports dysuria, but no penile discharge and no STI risk factors, no rash, no eye symptoms, and no sore throat. His past medical history is unremarkable with no history of gout or any other type of arthritis. On exam, his vital signs are normal, except for a heart rate of 115 and a temperature of 38.3. He has evidence of lower extremity joint effusions and tenderness, as well as swelling at the insertions of the Achilles tendons bilaterally. His ENT and cardiovascular exams are normal. There's no rash. The abdomen is soft and non-tender. He's able to weight bear, but it has severe pain with gait testing. We've already seen, as in our third case, that gonococcal arthritis can be polyarticular and that some of these patients could be considered to have reactive arthritis. We know that gout and septic arthritis can occasionally be polyarticular, which carries a worse prognosis. Could you just give us your general approach to patients with polyarticular arthritis in the ED? Which diagnoses and potential serious emergencies would you concentrate your energies on? Tough question, um, (laughs) because we see a certain spectrum of disease, and we probably see the higher acuity patients. But I would be concerned if a patient is systemically unwell. Uh, I'd be concerned if they have other organ involvement. Uh, So I think anybody with a polyarthritis needs to have a check for renal function, urine dip for protein, chest x-ray. The last thing that really is going to change it for us is if the person is really incapacitated by their symptoms, they're likely going to need to be admitted and we'll need some kind of a workup for that as well. But, But the main thrust is to identify other organ involvement because that's going to push us towards a more generalized problem rather than purely an MSK problem. Sure. So while we're not rheumatologists, it's, I think it is important to know some of the key features of some of the more common polyarticular diseases that we haven't talked about yet. The one thing we have to remember is anything that can cause an acute monoarthritis can also cause an acute polyarthritis. So in your differential, referring back to this case, a 40-year-old man who has a fever, uh, has a polyarthritis, could this be septic arthritis? Yeah. According to the ACR guidelines, you have to tap at least a joint, if not more. Could this be gonococcal arthritis? Yeah, it could be. And then the other thing, of course, that we want to consider uh, is reactive arthritis. And, you know, I've never liked reactive arthritis because I can never put a finger on it. Even the experts haven't been able to have a validated diagnostic or classification criteria for reactive arthritis. So, you know, when someone comes in with polyarthritis, you have to consider anything that can cause acute monoarthritis. You have to do the test that we've talked about before with septic arthritis. So a tap is essential. With the polyarthritis, just like Dr. Yaffe mentioned, I'm a little bit more prone to doing blood work. And in terms of particular diagnoses that we haven't mentioned so far for polyarticular arthritis, are there any particular diagnoses that come to mind that you might want to look for in your history and physical? There's a huge list for polyarthritis that might end up with patients coming to the emergency department. But there's the whole gamut of seronegative arthritis, which could include reactive arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, uh, ankylosing spondylitis. The common thing with all of those uh, is that you're looking usually for often um, oligoarthritis, axial joint involvement. Often they'll have some enthesitis, but the axial joint involvement should be a twig, and then you'll look for skin changes that might push you one way or another. It's pretty rare for me to get people presenting to the eMERGE with most of these things 
the least rare is probably reactive arthritis. So some of the other diagnoses that you should consider in someone who presents with polyarticular arthritis and has systemic symptoms are the seronegative spondyloarthropathies like ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, and arthritis associated with inflammatory bowel disease. The other diagnoses to think about are lupus and sarcoidosis. Dr. Yaffe is going to talk about a particular presentation of polyarthritis that you might see soon in your ED. One thing that people will see, a young person comes in with a, a lower extremity mono or oligoarthritis with a tender papular rash on the shins that looks like erythema nodosum. Uh, that's uh, somebody who you've got to consider the diagnosis of sarcoidosis in. That's uh, Lofgren syndrome. So if you see young person, arthritis, and uh, erythema nodosum, the next test of choice is a chest x-ray. So we've mentioned reactive arthritis as one of the more common causes of polyarticular arthritis. Reactive arthritis, or what used to be called Reiter's syndrome, has the so-called classic triad of urethritis, conjunctivitis, and arthritis. How useful is this classic triad in the ED when faced with a patient who has polyarthritis? And how do patients with reactive arthritis present in the real world? So I think the, the triad is not that useful in that, as you mentioned before, like most triads, people tend not to have all of them. How do they present in the real world? I think one of the things that we should be looking for are patients who have arthritis plus symptoms that suggest axial joint involvement and plus another feature which is enthesitis and that's when they get inflammation at the uh, at the bony tendon insertions so a guy i saw a little while ago much like the patient you've described a lot of difficulty walking because he had unbelievable inflammation at the insertion of his achilles tendons the triad if you like triads of Axial joint involvement, asymmetrical lower extremity oligoarthritis, and enthesitis is kind of a triad that you can get with any of the spondyloarthropathies. And then putting together the history and extra features can push you in a certain direction. When it comes to reactive arthritis, by reactive we mean in reaction to an infection. So what types of infection are seen as a precursor to reactive arthritis? So usually, again, organisms involved in enteric or GU organisms, so usually the infections are from those sites, so enteric sites or, or GU sites is the more common ones. I have seen one with cellulitis. Okay, so they can be post-venereal like chlamydia and post-dysentery like salmonella and campylobacter, right. yersinia. It, you know, of, of interest maybe in... In 2011, because it seems to be everywhere, there's some suggestion that uh, uh, Clostridium difficile can also be implicated in, in reactive arthritis, and we're seeing a lot of C. diff around, so mm. we'll have to see if that link uh, bears out. So the mainstay of therapy for reactive arthritis is NSAIDs. Because reactive arthritis is often triggered by chlamydia, for example, or some gastrobacteria that we were talking about, is there any role for antibiotics in the treatment of reactive arthritis? The simple answer is no, if it's reactive arthritis. I mean, if they culture something that's an ongoing source of infection, you would approach that like any other infection, but there's no acute role for antibiotics. What you have to remember is, again, you know, if you go back to the terminology, this is a reactive arthritis. So the arthritis is an inflammatory reaction to the preceding infection. So the only way you're giving antibiotics is if you're treating the preceding infection, which you think is still around, uh, but... 
the reactive arthritis itself, you're not going to treat with the antibiotics. So let's talk a bit about disposition of patients with acute arthritis. Obviously, the patient with suspected septic arthritis is going to be admitted. We've talked a little bit about disposition of some of these different kinds of arthritis. Which patients are you not going to admit who present with acute poly or monoarthritis? So monoarthritis is probably a different animal because if I think somebody's got crystal disease, they don't need to get admitted. The harder decisions are in polyarthritis. Most of those people are going to get referred or consulted. But I think when it comes down to it, if you get a well person who's got no evidence of any systemic involvement, who has a first presentation of a polyarthritis that's not incapacitating, that person could probably be managed symptomatically with an NSAID and referred for follow-up. If it doesn't fit all those criteria, then you may need to get a consult in the eMERGE. For this month's quote of the month, we have one from Sir Isaac Newton. If I have ever made any valuable discoveries... It's been due more to patient attention than to any other talent. Before we get on to Dr. Yaffe's best case ever, just a couple quick announcements. The University Health Network Emergency Medicine Conference is November 1st and 2nd, 2011 at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Toronto. I'll be speaking at the conference as well as many EM guest experts like Anil Chopra, David Carr, and Stella Yu. Some of the diagnoses we talked about in this episode have a big visual component to them, and so I'm going to try and get some pictures in the written summary of some of these diagnoses to help you out next time you're in the ED and face with a patient with arthritis. Dr. Yaffe, let it rip. Okay, so why is this my best case ever? This was, for me, a real learning experience in many ways, and it also reinforced some stuff that I think I knew in advance. So this was a guy who actually I saw about two weeks ago now, man who was about 65 years old, a diabetic, whose wife came home in the morning after she went shopping and came to find him slumped over at the table, awake but looking quite ill. Brought into our eMERGE, uh, had a temperature of 40 degrees. He was awake but really not answering questions well. And our history that we could get suggested that the guy had been pretty well in the past uh, week, although there might have been a bit of a history of a respiratory tract infection. We examined him. We did the usual tests looking for a source of sepsis. We did a chest x-ray, a urinalysis. Uh, lactate was eight. Uh, we fluid resuscitated him. Uh, we gave him broad-spectrum antibiotics to cover him for everything possible. ICU came down and saw him, and uh, despite fluid resuscitation, he really didn't look great, so ended up going to the ICU. When I followed him up the next day, I found out that his diagnosis was septic arthritis, and he was taken urgently to the OR. What happened? Well, by the time the next morning rolled around, he was fluid resuscitated and feeling better. And uh, at that point, he started complaining about his right knee. Uh, and when people examined him, it was clear that he had a swollen inflamed joint, had an aspiration done. His gram stain was positive for gram-positive cocci in clusters. What did I learn about this? I learned a few things. One, 
septic patients. It's not just meningitis. It's not just UTIs. It's not just belly sepsis. I'm going to remember to look at the joints. Uh, it's possible that if we examined him in a little more detail, we might have picked up this septic joint earlier. And uh, this is a man who ended up going to the OR shortly after the diagnosis was made. Another thing that I learned was that in this man, although we had some gram stain evidence, the only thing that actually grew was from his blood cultures. So for me, I need to remember that when I can, I'm going to try to get that fluid sent off before I start antibiotics. Obviously, in a sick patient as he was, the need to give antibiotics takes precedence. And the last thing that I want to remember is that you can't rely on the synovial fluid alone to make the diagnosis. Now, in this man, there's a couple of possibilities. Maybe he didn't grow anything because of all the antibiotics he had been on, but we also know that a percentage of patients with septic arthritis will not grow organisms from the joint fluid, and that's why we have to do blood cultures as well. And I guess the bit of the wake-up call for me was that even though it's pretty rare, Septic arthritis can present as a life-threatening illness, and we need to take it seriously when patients present and look unwell. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Until next time, take it easy.